Hello. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest and with respect is Robin Allen. Robin Allen is the owner of Forever Books in downtown St. Joseph. And we're going to be talking for our period today about the books that are interesting in the fall of 2022. With respect, Robin Allen. I'm great, thanks. Good, good. So, we got uh, the fall coming up. We're in the fall, rather, and going into the winter and uh, Christmas. And uh, I bet you there are some books out there that are of interest to you. This is the season, John, for big-name books. Books come out September, October, November, and carry them way, you know, carry through Christmas for Christmas gift-giving, holiday gift-giving. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of big, big books. Let's start off with, um, yeah, how about some fiction? Shall we talk about fiction okay. first? I, I thought we would do some um, mysteries, maybe, and some really important nonfiction that's just some fascinating stuff. Okay. So one of your favorites that comes out tomorrow, November 15th, is The Twist of a Knife by Anthony Horowitz. Oh, be still my beating heart. I, I know. I love that guy. He's a great writer. So, well, John, this is the fourth installment of this excellent series. And you have your protagonist, Anthony Horowitz, who is the author, a book within a book kind of thing. He's accused of a crime that he didn't commit. So he's written three books and solved several murders. And he's just ended his partnership with ex-detective Daniel Hawthorne so that he can focus on his play called Mind Game which is making its West End debut. On opening night, Mind Game receives a horrible review from the Sunday Times critic Harriet Throsby. Early the next morning, Horowitz is awakened by the London police seeking to question him in the murder of the critic who has just been stabbed to death in her home. So he's under arrest and he needs help and he goes back to his ex-partner. If you like Agatha Christie-style mysteries that lead to an unexpected reveal, this is for you. Well, this guy, when he writes books, they are very complex, and they are they're, they're fascinating as to how he interplays reality, that is, his name, his wife's name, um, people in London, people around the world, and he, folk, and, he and his the plays and the books he's written, and he brings into this character a fictional detective, a detective that doesn't really exist, apparently. And they, they form, form this weird partnership. I love it. It's great. And 
if, maybe some of our listeners have heard of the PBS series that's now on. I think it's on part four or part three or something at this point. And it's Magpie Mysteries. And Murders. that is, I'm sorry, Magpie Murder. And so that, you can see it on PBS. It's really well done. Really well done. But the book is better. <laughs> yeah. I like the book. I like the, uh, the other books he's come out of in that same series, which um, actually the Magpie Murders is, is not, a, um, uh, not one of the uh, Hawthorne series. It's a different series he's got going. He wrote probably, I, I'm, I'm told, uh, one of the best TV serials ever done, which is called Foil's War. Uh, about the run-up to and during the Second World War in Britain, uh, and his uh, Midsummer Murders is is his creation initially. So the guy is extremely prolific and very uh, popular, but not condescending. He he his plots are challenging. I, I love him. So I'm glad that you recognize you, uh, you you raised that fellow because that's a good book. It it really is. And the next couple of books that I'm going to talk about are both books that my staff has read. Uh, the first one is The Cloisters by Katie Hayes. And this is set in the Cloisters Museum in New York. Have you been there? Never I have, have been, no. I never have either. So it, I think it's more of a Gothic 15th century medieval Gothic art collection. Well, this character arrives, Anne Stilwell arrives in New York City, and she's supposed to be a curator at the, at the Met. Instead, she finds herself assigned to the Cloisters. It's a Gothic museum and garden renowned for its medieval art collection. And you have a group of enigmatic researchers studying the history of divination. So she discovers a 15th century deck of tarot cards hidden that might hold the key to predicting the future. And this is what Diane, I'm sorry, Beth writes in her little review on the shelf. Set in the Cloisters Museum in New York, Hayes' debut novel features murder, history, suspense, ill-advised love, and a tarot deck that actually may predict the future, an attention-grabbing and holding mystery with a satisfying ending. All right. And so she she really loved that. The next one that she read, she enjoyed so much that Stephen is now reading it. And we rarely double up on books because there's only so many of us in the store. So when we find someone that wants to read, you know, also read the book. And this is called The Night Ship, S-H-I-P, by Jess Kidd, K-I-D-D. And it's based on a true uh, it's a, actually it's about the lives of two nine-year-olds one is in 1628 and the other in 1989 and they intersect across time and it's a moving examination of the real life wreck of the Batavia where these people set sail from Harlem to their destination of Batavia the capital of the Dutch East Indies and in real life in 1628 the ship is broken in half and wrecked, and 300 survivors end up on, a, on a, one of the islands where I, I do really don't want to give too much away, but there's this, it's really kind of a mass 
I, I don't know. It's, there's a lot that's going on there. But what Beth writes about, she says it's based on a true and truly horrific Sorry, I had to take a drink. Story of a 17th century shipwreck off the coast of Australia. So she says it's historical fiction like she's never read. Hmm. And Matt, the, the <laughs> name of that book again. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I've got a little. That's all right. Uh, and uh, the, the name of that book. Pardon me. The name of that book and author again are. The Night Ship by Jess Kidd. Okay. As in Captain Kidd the Pirate. Oh, well. Sorry. Get a little. Um, and it's funny that she used to say that because one of the books that's not on this list that I just finished was the story of Captain Kidd's wife. Hmm. And so there is a book out there that's uh, that's pretty fascinating stuff because there's not really a lot about her, but mm -hmm. a lot about him. But you talk about a strong woman. It's It's just... It, it, it's called The Pirate's Wife, mm. and it really is good. You know, that's that's interesting because so many uh, books are out there of the last two or three years that <coughs> acquire some kind of popularity. And there's The Fisherman's Wife, The Time, uh, what is it, The uh, Everybody's Wife, Time Traveler's Time Wife, Traveler's wife. Mm -hmm. and on and on. Boy, all those wives, are, all of a sudden they're getting a lot of attention when as – uh, before that, it was all the uh, the men that were in the getting the attention. So now we have the women's side of the same story. Yes. Well, you've had 200, 300, 500 years of men writing books. So Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you get we'll get into that. But you're right. It, is, it, it really is a big popu a, a, a popular thing now. It's uh, the anything from the bookseller's daughter to the you know anything that has book or library or daughter or wife or uh, it's, it's been really popular. In a previous uh, show that we did, we talked about uh, the book, the Midnight Library, which mm -hmm. was absolutely fascinating, and and uh, I still remember good parts of it, and been recommending that to people. It's a ah. it's a really interesting story, I thought. Well, anyway, what else do we have? Okay. So next on my list is one by Lisa Unger. Have you read any of her books? Never have. I never have either, but it's, she's very popular. And this is called The Secluded Cabin Sleeps Six by Lisa Unger, U-N-G-E-R. And you have three couples who rent a luxury cabin in the woods for a weekend getaway. I mean luxury and it's i like the description is to die for but we mm -hmm. can get away to die for and it's a locked room thriller by this new york times best-selling author and this dreamy weekend is about to turn into a nightmare and of course you have a deadly storm brewing and the rental host seems a little too off and the personal chef reveals that their beautiful house has a spine-tingling history, of course. Mm. And and the friends have their own complicated past, the secrets that run deep. What is the name of that Agatha Christie book? And then there were none? Ten Little Indians, or that was the Ten play. Ten Little Indians. That was the yeah. play that was based on, and then there were none. Yes, yes. that's right. So it, it kind of reminds me that no one here has read it, but anyone who's read Lisa Unger really uh, 
she has quite a following, quite a following. So that's what I have for mysteries. Well, it's interesting. There is a, uh, a new book out uh, about, um, I'm just trying to think of the name of it right now, but it's a new Robert Galbraith book that mm. uh, is a pseudonym for uh, J.K. Rowling. Rowling, sorry. Mm -hmm. And I have not read it yet. I have. It's been sitting there. It's a big, thick uh, fellow and uh, have not read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it because I really like the characters. I like the... The drama, the, the the plots, and everything, and and, the, and uh, uh, even though it's long, it is long. It's it is long. It's it's the ink black heart. Right? That's it. Yeah. Ink black heart. Yes. And I have to say, this one, uh, I I read like her first one and wasn't really impressed, but since then, her books have really gotten excellent reviews, and the ink black heart also got really good reviews. So, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I will, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. So what else do we have we can talk about? Okay. Well, I have some, some nonfiction uh, that is pretty interesting, I have to say. And I think I've read all of these except for one. And I'm reading it now. And Stacy Schiff is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian author. And her new book is The Revolutionary... Samuel Adams, and it's about Samuel Adams from Revolutionary Times, and he was a cousin to John Adams, one of our presidents. And one thing about Samuel Adams, we don't realize that he had such an instrumental role in triggering the events that would lead to the American Revolution. I didn't realize it either. Yes, this is the Samuel Adams of the beer fame. Mm -hmm. But he's over, typically overshadowed by such, you know, his contemporaries at like Washington Jefferson and his second cousin, John Adams. But his behind-the-scenes machinations were really a crucial factor in setting the wheels of revolution in motion. We don't hear much about him because most of his personal papers he burned so that nobody would, would uh, read them. So she spent quite a few years digging through a lot of this. And it was a lot of it I've just never heard of. I had no idea. So he's more known for beer for <laughs> our <laughs> contemporary times, but he had really quite uh, a role in our American Revolution. And the name of the book again is? Is, is The Revolutionary Samuel Adams by Stacy Schiff, S-C-H-I-F-F. All right. I've read a couple of her other books, really good. Right. And if we if we move along to history, we've got one of my absolute favorite authors next to to David McCullough is John Meacham. All right, we're going to take a break now before we get into those uh, other books and talk about um, these historical uh, journal historical writers, which I find uh, very interesting. Uh, in their own backgrounds. So, uh, this is John Smetanka, run with respect, and we're talking to Robin Allen, the owner of Forever Books in uh, beautiful downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. We'll be right back.
We're now back on With Respect with Robin Allen, the owner of Forever Books, and we're talking about the new books that are coming out uh, this fall, 2022, and looking towards the uh, big book-giving splurge uh, at Christmas time. This is John Smetanka. So, Robin, when we broke, you started to talk about some other historical authors, that is, uh, fiction, nonfiction writers. So let's start in the beginning. Yes, and, and this is my favorite genre, is nonfiction, whether it's science or history, whatever. But this one is John Meacham, who's one of my absolute favorite um, writers and historians. And his, this book is And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. And I think it's more of Abraham Lincoln's struggle with what how he had to confront succession, threats to democracy, and the tragedy of slavery. He's a president who governed a divided country, which has much to, I would say, teach us in the 21st century that we have a polarization. And, I mean, he doesn't talk about present, so it's not a preaching political. Mm-hmm. But but he's given us a, a, a Lincoln. You'd think that there's not one more Lincoln book that could be written, but this one is a whole different, whole different view of Lincoln. And I would say it's it's a really smart book. This man is a genius, and it and it, I I'm not worked my way all the way through it because there's a lot of meat in there for me to to uh, contemplate. So, are you talking about the author is a genius or Lincoln? The well, uh, the the author I think is is if just to hear him speak is uh, he's quite a challenge to my intellect I have to say. Mm-hmm. Well, you but, know there there is Lincoln. You talk about the plethora of books that he has uh, been the subject of, and looking all around. I I remember I I was with a U.S. attorney from um, the western part of Virginia. Uh, many years ago, and a nice man, very, very well respected in the group, uh, did not, uh, was not a, a rabble rouser, just quietly doing his job. And he was a Lincoln devotee. And he talked about Lincoln as a lawyer. And he wrote a book in that, uh, a short book in that vein, and sent it to me. Uh, an absolutely fascinating study of Lincoln as a lawyer, which has now recently been um, updated also by another author talking about uh, Lincoln as a trial lawyer. And there's so many aspects to this, uh, this Lincoln fellow that um, we are continually confronted with all of the, f- the different facets uh, of his life and his personality and his accomplishments that uh, I suspect will continue to fascinate authors and researchers, um, you know, for another hundred years, I, I suspect. Um, just an interesting man, interesting mm-hmm. writing. I Actually, I started the, uh, the book, which has been The Definitive Life of, uh, of Lincoln, uh, by Carl Sandburg, a, troi- mm-hmm. a, a threesome book. Um, about the prairie years and the war years and whatnot, and just a really, really well written and very interesting. And part of that book was written while he was living in Berrien County, Michigan. 
and mm. uh, fascinating uh, story in that regard. But at any rate, I'd, I share your interest. I've, uh, we've talked about my favorite uh, historian, Lynn Olson, who uh, talked about in several books, six or seven books, about the period from, uh, say, 1935 through the Second World War, and uh, again, a dynamic writer. You just can't put, the, once you start, you can't put the book down. Lots of things to think about and sticks with you for a long time. So mm. I want to add that in simply because. He does have a new book. And Lynn Olson has a new book coming out in February. Ooh, cool. All right. What's it's it? called Empress of the Nile, the Daredevil Archaeologist Who Saved Egypt's Ancient Temples from Destruction. Very interesting. And and this, as a matter of fact, if it's what I think who I think it is, there was a PBS documentary about this man who moved these temples because when the uh, Aswan Dam mm -hmm. was being built, moved all of those temples so that they would be uh, saved. Just amazing. So I can't wait to read this. Yeah. So I'm glad you you mentioned that. It reminded me. Well, when I talked to, I talked to her. Um, in one of my shows, and, and uh, she, what she said was that in every book that she writes, she looks for somebody, some person, that is um, perhaps an underdog, underdog someone mm -hmm. who hasn't gotten a lot of attention. In one of those books um, called The Citizen of London, uh, or Citizen of London, um, he, she highlighted a fellow by the name of John... Oops, I just skipped his last name, skipped me. Um, but he was the ambassador, the American ambassador to the uh, Carter St. James, Britain, uh, leading right into the, the first part of the war and on through. And this man was a powerful figure uh, behind the scenes in bringing the United States and Britain together um, in, in many ways, many ways, many ways. And hmm. it was respected uh, by the, the common people. This, the story opens with, with um, this man with, uh, coming out of a theater in London in 46 or 47 and um, unassuming, quiet, and people fa saw him. They came up to him and, and kept saying, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you for all your work, which is amazing for a, a, a diplomat who kept his, uh, his distance from... Uh, publicity at, during that time. He did some remarkable things. But at any rate, that's a, it's a great book, Citizens of <laughs> London. Go ahead. What's next? Interesting. Well, I guess if we're going to move through history, the next one fits into this. This is uh, this is called Appy's Berlin Diaries, My Quest to Understand My Grandfather's Nazi Past by Gabrielle Robinson. She is going to actually. She's going to be signing on Small Business Saturday, which is November twenty sixth, from one to three. Uh, she got her PhD at the University of London, and has been teaching here in the U.S. for many, many years. Is now a uh, retired, of course, and is a professor emeritus. And she, you know, it offers a personal perspective on the fall of Berlin in 1945 and the far-reaching aftershocks of the Third Reich. After her mother's death, the author was thrilled to find her grandfather's war diaries, only to discover that he had been a Nazi. So it shows him as a, do a doctor in Berlin, desperately trying to help the wounded in cellars, 
without water or light and his anxiety and despair. And so he took, he had this daily diary. So she retraces his steps 50 years later and tries to come up to answers why he joined the Nazi party. Well, at the same time, she remembers the happiest years of her childhood with him. So it's, it's kind of, you know, we all need to kind of reckon with our country's past and sometimes with our own family's past. So it should be, I have started it, but I have not finished it. And uh, while she will just be signing, we're hoping that in sometime this spring, I'd like to have her come and speak and also sign. So that should be interesting. Sure. What else do we have? Okay. We also have uh, Clint Hill was moving forward in time here. The Secret Service agent to Jacqueline Kennedy has written a memoir, his latest memoir, and he has recollections of trips that he took with her and along with more than 200 rarely or never previously published photographs. And they see her in private moments. And it's kind of a multidimensional depiction of an unusually deep relationship that he acknowledges he never crossed the line into romance, but they were very close. And uh, he provided her with comfort and security that went beyond friendship. So this uh, shows her as she really was, fun-loving, adventurous, spontaneous, down-to-earth and elegant at the same time. So that is that is out. Well, his, his, he's well-known um, yes. for his his being around the Kennedys, uh, I think before, during the, uh, the period of the assassination, mm-hmm. uh, as well as afterwards. He's a very well-known guy. So very interesting. Go ahead. What else? Yeah, he did. He did write a book too, Mrs. Kennedy and me, like ten years ago, so or more. So this is a kind of a follow-up. I think this is maybe a little more lighthearted and more photographs that have never been seen. So, so one of my favorite uh, books is uh, it comes out December six. It's called Your Table Is Ready: Tales of a New York City Mater D. I cannot pronounce his last name. It is Italian. It's Michael Cecchi Azolina, C-E-C-C-H-I hyphen A-Z-Z-O-L-I-N-A, Michael Cecchi Azolina. So this is sort of without reservations by Anthony Bourdain kind of thing where there's shocking and, and I have to say there's titillating revelations about the behind the scenes shenanigans in the 35 years, he was also a server and general manager of several New York City restaurants. Um, who was the one who was for um, Danny Meyer? And Danny Meyer at one time worked at the bistro here on the boulevard hmm. bef- before he went to New York City and opened all these restaurants. Mm-hmm. So it's really highly entertaining stuff, a lot of name dropping some shocking things uh one story that's not so shocking that that can be repeated on the radio oh oh is... oh, oh, oh here we go <laughs> no 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 i won't tell that story there there are some that you're just like oh ah uh, but this one is a, a woman came in and whispered to him that 
she needed a private room for this for this guest who was I think maybe by herself I don't know and she he said there's no way I'm sorry we don't have a special room all our guests are treated equally and she said but this is for royalty and and Michael says I don't care I really don't care so she said I need empty tables on either side and he did not acquiesce come to find out she said it's the girlfriend of royalty this is new york city guess <laughs> now they would not say who it is but we're <laughs> thinking of course megan markle mm -hmm. so he, he does name some names but not not as many but it, it is and it's also was during the the times of Studio 54, um, what is the name of the famous restaurant that in New York City on the lake that is, oh, I can't remember what it is, but you, you'd recognize some of these restaurants, mm -hmm. pretty famous. And, uh, and of course, he does give some ideas on what you should and should not do when approaching a maitre d'. Oh, that's, that's helpful because... Yes, you go to a, a, a nice restaurant, and uh, but they don't know who you are, uh, right? And you want to get a table, and there's a, a line three and a quarter miles long, right? And you want to say, should I offer a bribe? Should I just? I should I compliment the man? Shall I? Shall I? Shall I tell him about my sick mother? I'm, I'm who's about I to know. die. I mean, is there what in heaven's name is going to get me oh. a table before I fall out of out of oh starvation? Oh, it's Tavern on the Green. It just Tavern came to my brain. Okay. okay. But you're right. Uh, a lot of times he does talk about offering money. But I think, you know, what, what you want to, as I saw once on a Sex of the City, if I, if I, she says, hand her, hand her to $50. She says, if I had $50, you know, I could eat. <laughs> so, so I don't even know if $50 would do it, but it was uh, because some of the restaurants that he was in. But it really is fascinating stuff, and, uh, you know, you're behind the scenes. So it's a little bit voyeurism, yeah. which is fun. All right, we're going to take another break right now. We're talking to Robin Allen, who is the owner of Forever Books. And on our quarterly C, uh, uh, study of What's, what's out there? What's interesting to read? What's good to give? Uh, what's good to receive? We'll be right back. This is John Smetanka. Respect with Robin Allen, the owner of Forever Books in beautiful downtown St. Joseph. And we've been talking now about the time of uh, maybe gift giving in the fall going into the winter, the Christmas season of, of 2022. This is John Smotankin. 
Now, I've got one for you. Uh, this okay. is an old book. I'm not even sure if you it's it's in print anymore, but it may be in a library somewhere. And it's a it, it was brought to mind by what you were talking about the woman who was trying to figure out about her ancestor who was a Nazi, and you talked about uh, starting with the, uh, the the battle, the fall of Berlin, and going on through the the area that. Uh, the area of Germany and the, and the world, and the events that happened afterwards, after the war. And it put me in mind of a book called uh, To Marietta from Paris. And hmm. it's Marietta. The Marietta is Marietta Tree, who is a, a woman who was uh, part of a social um, set, uh, set in uh, the United States and the East Coast. And it's letters written to her by her friend, Susan Mary Alsop. Mm. And S Susan Mary Alsop was uh, married to a fellow um, who was in the American diplomatic corps and was assigned to Europe uh, during and after the, the Second World War. And a part of that time was in Paris. Some of, some of the time was in Italy and uh, so on. But... It's written in letter format, and I, st I started this, I thought, oh, man, this is just going to be some, you know, uh, we went to, uh, we saw a mm -hmm. bombs fall, and, and we went to a cocktail party. Quite the contrary. This is a gripping book, because uh, this woman was part of a, a special uh, class of people, you know, well-educated, well-married, um, but they were in... You know, she and her husband were real devotees of uh, America and its uh, its uh, vision in the in the post-war area, post-war area. But her description of Paris in the time after the um, the, the freedom of uh, the freeing of Paris from the Nazi rule, and on through, is and there was one of their own mini revolutions was absolutely gripping. Could not, could not put it down. And it's a description of social life, of business life, of di diplomatic life, and it's a sort of a, you know, very well-known people in the certainly in the literary and the diplomatic world. And I just thought it was a great book, and um, so I recommend it uh, because I read it. I love it. Excellent. Excellent. I, I love in the bookstore. We'll just people, complete strangers, will come up to each other and say, "Oh, I read that; it's fabulous," or "Oh, there's another book like that. If you like that one, you love this one." Well, I'm going to put a I'm going to put a bug in your ear before after we've gone through books. I want to bug in your ear for uh, your comments on the importance of word of mouth uh, okay. in people choosing what books to read or to read at all. So, but let's go on with the, with the okay. books you've been Okay, I just about. have a few more. I, I think yeah. I only have like uh, three more books. And, go ahead. Um, so the next one is, I'm going to go take a little side, aside here. And this book is called How to Speak Whale by Tom Mustill, M-U-S-T-I-L-L. And you can actually get online and you will see Tom Mustill was a, is a biologist and he's he and this other woman are in a kayak off the coast of california 
when a whale breaches on top of his kayak. Ooh. They both live. But you can actually look it up online and see it happening. It's it's it'll boggle your mind. So it begins a journey for him to understand how whales communicate. And you know, what what was this whale trying to tell him? And actually, they ended up finding at the end of the book, they ended up finding the same whale, which it's fascinating how science has you know, preceded all of this. Now, the whole whaling industry, commercial whaling, really there was a time when it was so unbelievably awful. But this uh, muscle found this biologist who I, I won't tell you exactly why he got into this because the story is pretty gruesome, but he begins to start recording whale song. I mean, nobody, nobody talked about whale song in the seventies or anything, but he, this was created into a record and it was put into everyone who had a subscription to the national geographic and people went crazy over, you know, hundreds of thousands of people went crazy over it. And it really brought to the attention what was going on with commercial whaling. And that record actually made it into the Voyager satellite that was put into space where they recorded human, all different languages. Do you, you, know, you remember that? I do. Yes, I do. Okay. So that record ended up there. So he did, it's, it's really meaty stuff and really interesting, interesting stuff. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So, let, me, let me just, as, you're talk, as long as you're talking sure. about whales, there's an interesting book. Again, this is not new. It's a, it's a classic in, um, I guess you would say, science fiction, although it's, it's mm. uh, as much social commentary as anything. Very funny. <clears throat> the great author, Douglas Adams, uh, oh. wrote a series of books uh, starting with um, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And he then also wrote a book, uh, Goodbye and Thanks for All the Fish, in, the, in which... Saving the whales and saving the dolphins uh, became a uh, a very um, uh, it's an interesting hook for this story to talk about uh, mm. alien life. Anyway, gr great writer, very funny, and uh, that was you know again one of those things that uh, you tie tie space into whale sounds, and it came to mind. Okay, all right. So the, uh, I think I just have one more, two more. This is, uh, this is called Con, C-O-N slash artist, colon, The Life and Crimes of the World's Greatest Art Forger by Tony Tetro, T-E-T-R-O. And he was one of the most prolific art forgers of the 20th century. And keep in mind what he used back then there's no way he could get away with it now. And he even admits that now. So he kind of paints his own life story with really great flair. And living in New York in the 1960s, he started by freehand drawing from examples in his mother's photo magazines. And over time taught himself techniques from art books. Now, when he was 16, his girlfriend got pregnant and but he would stay up late making these elaborate copies of, the, of Rembrandt, Renoir, Picasso. And he and his young family relocated to Southern California. And he took all these low-paying jobs. But 
on his off time, he discovered museums and he started dabbling in forgeries offered in auction in the early 70s. And his first one was selling a fake Chagall sketch to a local art gallery. And this just blew up. I mean, he create, developed methods to create provenance or realistic history to, uh, to the paintings. For example, he would use smudged cigarette ash on the back of a faux Dali. <laughs> and what followed were, and, and it was amazing because a lot of people knew and a lot of art dealers knew that they were forgeries, but when you can sell them for two hundred fifty thousand to, you know, and up, uh, you know what led to fancy cars and lavish parties and traveling the world. But we know the law caught up with him. But it is, uh, I mean, he turned out okay. It's sort of like the art world's the Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing, you know, the big high and the big low mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it was in 1989, he was convicted of art forgery in a really heavily publicized trial in Los Angeles. And uh, one of the, the co-author with him has, is a journalist, and he has extensive experience in investigative and hard news documentary. He was the one who broke the story of... Um, He's producing it now. He's producing a feature documentary on Prince Charles' art forgery scandal, where these were copies, none of Tetros, but it is in the book about Prince Charles was given this paintings for his collection, and they were all forgeries. It was a big scandal. I think it was in 2019, something like that. So it it really is fascinating. You're just, it's its almost like a movie. I would make a fabulous movie. And great, great reading. Really enjoyed it. You know, in, in a um, sidelight to that, uh, some years ago when I was U.S. attorney, <clears throat> I tried a case in front of a judge in Kalamazoo, federal judge, and the topic of this trial was we were prosecuting a fellow who had apparently or allegedly stolen a number of Dali, Salvador Dali, uh, art works. And it, the, the story of what Dali did produce uh, was absolutely fascinating. Um, he pl- produced plateware for dinners that were, some of them were, uh, but to look at them, I don't know how you could eat the food in front of you on the table, mm-hmm. on, the, on the platform, because it was so uh, weird. But uh, a part a part of that was uh, he was selling uh, f- material with uh, Dali's uh, signature on it, which uh, wasn't really uh, genuine. Oh, and uh, that was fascinating to our judge, who uh, uh, spent a lot of time talking to the art expert and the and the victim, um, whose matter was, things were stolen. Uh, about Dali and about his background. And it was a great diversion from uh, sitting and and, uh, listening to uh, uh, stuff that really dealt with guilt and innocence. He was more interested in Dali than I think he was in the... He left up the guilt or innocence to the jury. But at any rate, Mm -hmm. it was fascinating to see in the art world what is and what is not really genuine. And there's so much of it. It's just unbelievable. And, and what these 
forgers go through to make it real. I mean, he at one point he used pizza ovens to, to heat the mm-hmm. to to heat the paintings, and he would do it like a sludge. We would take he would smoke these cigarettes and then you know get this brown sludge on it. I mean, just you're like really, <laughs> but you know he, he here's a man who was probably a mediocre painter at best. Maybe he was good, but he wasn't going to make a living from it. Mm-hmm. And if he saw a way to make a, a, you know, a ready buck. And, and what's fascinating too is he, I don't know if this is true, but he, the first thing he did was he kept buying these cars. And I mean, Rolls Royce and Lamborghinis and just uh, 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 unbelievable Ferraris and lost it all. But uh, there's more to it than that, but it, it really makes for some fascinating, fascinating reading. Well, there's so. a, there is, he was probably a loner. Uh, that is, he yes. had to keep his work to himself. Uh, yes. But it, it, it proves in this and many other situations that I can think of, Underline the truth of the old, I think it was Shakespearean or pre-Shakespearean phrase, which went, uh, down to Gehenna, that's hell, down to Gehenna, up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. Uh And you look around at some of these folks, uh, Bernie Madoff or some of the great great cons, they must. They, they give the truth to what uh, my mother used to say about the liar, the habitual liar, and that is that a habitual liar is a very unhappy person. Is it? It's not because that person has to keep track of their lies. That's relatively simple. But what it is is we always judge other people by ourselves, and if mm-hmm. we are liars. We have to look at those other people, and our presumption is that they're lying, and therefore, you cannot trust anybody. So you're living in a world where you are the only thing that you have to deal with. To you know, that's your only perspective, and it's unhappy. It's a very unhappy time, even wow. though they have the Lamborghinis and the right. and the whatnots. And and that's so true. It, what you just said is exactly true of this. Of, after reading this book, that's a, exactly true of this man too. Mm-hmm. We're going to take another break right now. We're talking to Robin Allen, who is the owner of uh, Forever Books in downtown St. Joseph, Michigan. We're talking about books which might be of interest to people, um, or readers, or gift givers uh, in the fall of 2022. This is John Smutanka, and we will be right back. with respect with Robin Allen, the uh, owner of Forever Books in in St. Joseph, Michigan. We've been talking about books 
for giving and books for reading uh, in this fall of, ni- of 2022. This is John Smetanka. So now I come down to, uh, unless you have another book that you I want to I only have one more book. All right, then I only highlight have one more book. Then highlight it's, it. Uh, and, it I, and I have not read it yet. Um, I think I might have gave you a copy of it, too. It's Historic Shipwrecks and Rescues on Lake Michigan mm. by Michael Passwater. And some of it is a lot has to do with our area, too, in the St. Joseph area. And there are photographs in there. I have not read it yet. I have it at home. He is signing on November 30th. I'm going to do a talk. But it looks really interesting. So, Interestingly, uh, he will be a guest on one of our shows in the future. Oh, wonderful. 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 And so that's that's uh, all I have. All right. Um, well, now here's my turn to to um, kind of get your views on something which has always intrigued me. What is the motivating factor that gets people, either as individuals or groups, to go after a particular work? Now, let's talk, we're, not, we're now talking about books here. You could toss, uh, toss uh, out uh, uh, movies as well or records or whatever. But I want to talk about books. There's, there's advertising, and I've been one of those people who signed uh, an endorsement of a book or two. And so when people pick up that book, they'll see that John Smetanka endorsed this book or liked it or liked the author or whatever. But is then there's a lot of money put into uh, the publishing business Publishers will get out and send their authors on book tours, and uh, they'll come to uh, all different kinds of places around the country and talk and, and sell their book, and so on and so on and so on. But there is one thing which is not as well discussed, I don't, I don't think, and that is word of mouth. And you've, you've alluded to this word of mouth thing uh, over the, the years that we've been doing this show, and I want to focus now and get you to talk about what your experiences are in these various kinds of uh, ways of bringing books to atten- to people's attention. What do you think? Uh, well, you were talking earlier about books. I would tell you about a book, and then you would bring up a book. And I, th- I think the w- these are books that resonate to you, that touches you deeply somewhere in your mind and heart and you can't help but talk about it when you go to a nice a great restaurant and have a fabulous meal uh, you you get two things you either get oh my gosh I hate this and then everybody knows about it or oh my gosh I love this and everybody knows about it so it, it has to hit you one way or the other I mean haven't we all read books and went oh why why did I read this book? It was a waste of time. Yeah, you, so and, I, it, you, you and I have talked about Yes, uh, it, didn't re- it didn't resonate. It was yes. an awful, awful, horrible book. Awful, horrible book. Yeah. And, and there are people, I can list a couple of books that I just hated, and people just love the book. And I think there's something, I know in the store someone will look at uh, the reviews that are on the, shel- on the shelf there, and they have maybe set a relationship with another person, whether it's the bookseller, a friend, or, or maybe even a stranger that smiles or, you know, in the bookstore. But the enthusiasm that 
one person has, it's infectious. And who knows what, what really will, sometimes someone will recommend a book and I, I have read this author's works and went, oh no, this is not for me. Uh, but, but just the fact that this person is so excited about it, it gives me a sense of pleasure to know that they loved, that, that a book has touched them. Because if you are a reader or when you read a book and it has touched you, it changes you. You're not the same person because mm-hmm. it has affected you. If it's fiction, it's usually empath, em, you know, empathy or it resonates with your life or, uh, you know, whether it, it affects you love or danger or excitement of some sort. And that is the magic of books. You know, it's interesting you mention that because <clears throat> I have a granddaughter and this granddaughter um, loves for me to read to her. Mm. And one of the books I was going to, looking uh, last year for a gift for her birthday or uh, Christmas, I can't remember which. And um, Diane gave me a, a, a book, and it's Robert Frost's Stopping by the Woods on a, on a, wintry, on a snowy evening. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a poem that he wrote, and it's very famous. But this author illustrated it, took, in, took uh, a whole unique way of looking at the, at the story behind the poem, as, as she wrote it, and uh, it caught the attention of my granddaughter, who's six years old. And she, it caught her attention at uh, when she was five years old. And we would read it. And today, when we get together again, first thing she says is, Grandpa, let's read uh, Stopping by the Woods. And she now uh, reads, reads along with me. She will read the words and listen to the sound and tie them together with the pictures, the illustrations. And I'm so happy because it, Frost happens to be one of my favorite uh, poets, and, uh, and the book is one of my favorites. And here I've got... Uh, however, ne- yeah? if, if a stranger had read her that book, it wouldn't be the same, John. Than well, her grandfather. Maybe, maybe. I, I mean, of course, it was a good. It's great. It's wonderful. But, but there's there is an attachment there because of that book. Mm. Uh, for my my nieces, I we would every night that I was there at their parents' house and took care of them. We would they pick out three books and we'd lay on the living room floor and read those books. It was just a tradition. Well. Uh, I did this with my daughter, and it's not. Mm. Uh, we have different had different kinds of books that we read, uh, and I'm not going to get into all of that. Uh, it's personal, but uh, I found that it was a great pleasure to me to read mm. to my daughter, to my granddaughter, to m- either one of my granddaughters, and it's an added extra mm-hmm. to reading for yourself. Because you, you're, there's this tangible bond that between you and the book and mm-hmm. the person you're reading to. And uh, you're right. This, it's the bond between the, the, that, 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 uh, that triangle. You, the other person, 
and the book that uh, makes all the difference and uh, makes for memor- memories, which going back. I remember books that I was read by my parents uh, when I was a kid, and I, I have that special memory. And mm-hmm. when I, so when I start talking, well, for example, to Marietta from Paris, which I talked to you about, I got that uh, from my mother, and I uh, thought, well, that's so, so, so boring, boring. And I couldn't put it down. And I, every time I pick it up again, and I do, I think of my mother, as well as the content of the book. So. Have you ever read a book maybe when you're younger or went back to it when you're older? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. One of my favorite examples of that was the book Dr. Zhivago, which I read when I was 13 to start with because I was at a, a family Christmas party where I was bored with everybody there and all of my cousins were, in my mind, uh, uh, people I didn't want to spend the night with. And uh, so I went into a corner and I found this book. It has just been published by an American publisher. It was a Russian novel by Boris Pasternak, which, for which he got the Nobel Prize. And I remember sitting in a corner reading it, and here's a twist. I didn't get the whole book read, but my aunt, who I did not know, had a, a love of literature, watched me and asked me as I was leaving, did you like that book? I said, I loved it. And about three days later in the mail came a copy of that book. Mm. And I always remembered my aunt, my aunt with great uh, favor uh, after that. And I will tell you, I took that book home, back to school, and instead of studying for my exams, the midterms, I sat in the back with the usual, you know, big brown paper thing in the front so no one saw what I was reading during study period. I would read Dr. Jafago instead of studying. And darn, mm. I got the best grades I've ever gotten. <laughs> Your mind was working. My so mind, it was. Yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, the, I think the, that flows from the, the, what I started to raise, which is the interrelationship between people, word of mouth, or the bond. I think you brought out that extremely well. So, and and you, you know, everybody should take delight at some point in their lives if they have a, a career that they enjoy. Uh, looking back and saying to themselves, why? What makes me happy? I mean, I as a lawyer, I'm happy when my client uh, does well uh, mm-hmm. bef- during my representation and afterwards. And when I um, when you are selling books and, and people come back to you and talk about them, you've got to feel really good. Oh, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. That's, um, you know, for years I was looking for my passion. What is my passion? People say, go after your passion. And I can truly say that I, I can't even think about retiring. People are saying, well, you're getting up there, Robin, getting ready to retire. But when you love what you do why do you want to stop so yeah even and it really overcomes a lot of the stress and uh, anxiety because there are things like everyone who has their own business or works for themselves there there is stress and responsibility that sometimes you know kind of you know kind of really affects your, your uh, love for what you do. 
but it's it's uh, when it gets to the point where that is worse than the good stuff, then maybe it is time to retire, yeah. but not yet for me. Yeah. So. All right. Robin Allen, thank you very much for your time and all your recommendations and your thank thoughts you, about John. reading. Thank you, John. This is John Smetanka, run with respect. And remember, run every week and during the time between now and then, remember our mantra. If you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. And read a good book today. And read a book. <laughs>